The movie What About Bob stars Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfuss. And it's a pretty funny movie if you've ever seen it. And Bill Murray's character Bob is this lovable but very troubled patient of Richard Dreyfuss's Dr. Leo Marvin. And Leo Marvin is a psychiatrist. So he sees Bob, and, and Bob, you know, to most people is rather lovable. He's really quirky, but to Dr. Marvin, he's very needy and very clingy and doesn't respect any kind of personal boundaries. And so when Dr. Marvin is going to take his family on a summer-long vacation up to the Hamptons or wherever they're going, he, he's worried about how to get rid of Bob. Bob's in his office as usual, and so he's trying to, to get rid of Bob so he can go on. And so finally, out of exasperation, he tells Bob, you know, just... Why don't you take a vacation? Take a vacation from your problems while I'm on vacation. And so Bob says, well, that's a great idea. A vacation from my problems. That sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? And who hasn't thought about jumping in a car and driving off and leaving all your financial worries behind? Or hopping on a plane and flying off to Hawaii and leaving behind all the stress of work and school and home, right? Who's not wanted to board a train and leave all your health issues behind at the station? I mean, it's very inviting. But the trouble with problems is that they don't take vacations, do they? And when you go away and you come back, guess what's there waiting for you? Your problems. And oftentimes, while you're gone, it seems like they got worse. Which is exactly what happens for Dr. Marvin. Because Bob decides that he's going to take his vacation from his problems where Dr. Marvin's going to have his vacation. And so Bob shows up at the family resort and brings all his problems with him and hilarity ensues. But see, the Bible never tells us to take a vacation from our problems. The Bible never tells us to run away from our problems because the Bible is far more realistic and honest, too honest, to give us false hope in such crazy solutions as trying to run away from your problems. So instead of running away from our problems, the Bible instead tells us where to take our problems to the Lord. Now, the past few weeks, we've been spending our Sunday mornings in Genesis. And if nothing else, the book of Genesis teaches us that we live in a world filled with problems. And even God's chosen family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even they encounter problem after problem after problem. And the book finally has this crescendo of problems as Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, is sold by his brothers into Egyptian slavery. And Joseph encounters just these insurmountable odds and, and misfortune after misfortune. But God is always with him, and eventually Joseph becomes second in command of all Egypt and works this plan to save the Egyptians and anybody else who lives around them from this famine that's coming. And so finally his brothers come looking for food. When they realize who Joseph is, that he's the second in command of Egypt, they're scared that he's going to kill them. But Joseph answers them and says, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. And so jump ahead 400 years, and Abraham's children have now grown into a nation of millions. They are now the the nation of Israel. And they have now become the slaves in Egypt. And Pharaoh treats them harshly because he's afraid of them. He's afraid of their great numbers. And so at one point he orders that every child born to a Hebrew woman that's a a male to have that baby boy thrown into the Nile River and drowned. But one Hebrew mother takes her little boy down to the Nile River, not to drown him, 
but to save him. And she takes him and she puts him in this basket and she floats him down the river to where Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. Now this was no pleasure cruise. This was no vacation from their problems. No, this was a daring and subversive attempt at rescue. And sure enough, Moses is drawn from the water, that's what his name means, by Pharaoh's daughter, and she raises him as her own. Well, later in life, Moses, in this mistaken attempt to to be a hero to the Hebrew people, kills an Egyptian. And so Pharaoh comes after him, and Moses tries to take a vacation from his problems. He escapes, he runs away, he flees to the backside of nowhere and spends 40 years running away from his problems, tending sheep. But it's right there that God finds Moses. And he calls out to Moses, speaks to Moses from a bush that burns but isn't consumed. And he says to Moses, Moses, no more vacationing from your problems. I've got a job for you to do. My people have problems back in Egypt and I'm sending you to go and deliver them from Egypt. So Moses reluctantly answers. He goes back to Egypt and he confronts Pharaoh. And he tells Pharaoh to let God's people go. But it just makes Pharaoh mad. So rather than helping Israel, it seems like Moses has made things worse for them because now Pharaoh says that they've got to collect the straw for their own brick making. But he doesn't let up on the quotas. They still have to make the same number of bricks. And that's where we pick up the story. Read with me in Exodus 5, beginning in verse 19. The Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. So the people of Israel aren't too happy with Moses right now, are they? You know, yeah, you come making these grand promises. You're going to set us free. You're going to do all this. You've just made things worse for us. May God bring judgment on you. And so Moses, obviously upset, returned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name... He's brought trouble upon this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. Moses' question, Why, O Lord? is repeated often throughout the Bible. We read it in the Psalms. When it says, How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? We hear it from Jesus on the cross when He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When life seems oppressive, when it seems as if the world is crashing in, don't we all ask that same question? Why, Lord? How long, Lord? Well, the good news is that God hears our cries. He sees our sorrow. And He comes down to do something about it. Let's continue in Exodus 6, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it as to you as a possession. I am the Lord. God responds to Moses and the people by reminding them of two great truths. And these great truths can give us hope as we face insurmountable odds, as we struggle with the problems of living in a sinful and fallen world, we have hope first and foremost because God remains in control. God remains in control. In verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. To Moses and all the people, it looked as if God wasn't doing anything at all. Back up there in 523, Pharaoh was certainly busy doing stuff, causing more trouble and hardship for Israel. But Moses says to God, you've not rescued your people at all. See, Moses and the people, they can see their problems all too well. And isn't that the way it is for us? Well, we sure can't see our problems. We sure can't see the difficulties and the things that we struggle with. We, our sin is ever before us, as David says in, in Psalms. But we can't seem to see God's hand at work. Moses and Israel, they could see Pharaoh and what he was doing, but they couldn't see that God was doing anything, and so they doubted God's promises. Maybe you wonder the same thing. Where is God? When will He show up and help? But no matter what you face, no matter what your situation may seem like, know that God is sovereign. He is supreme. And by His mighty hand, God is in control. When His people were enslaved in Egypt, God is in control. When His people fall to Satan's temptations and wallow in sin, God is in control. When the floods rage and the winds blow and the fires burn, God is in control. When families are split and nations are divided and the future seems uncertain, God is in control. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now. Sometimes I think God allows us to struggle so that we realize that only He can save us. Moses had failed to change Pharaoh's mind. Only God would be able to set His people free by His mighty hand and outstretched arm, not by Moses' negotiating skills. And when we face life's difficulties, when we wrestle with our own sinfulness and failures, we have to trust God alone for our salvation. He alone can rescue. He alone can save. He alone can lift us from the grave. There's another great truth that can give us hope. Not only does God remain in control, but secondly, God remembers His covenant. God remembers his covenant. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there in, in Exodus 6 2, God basically says that, that they didn't know God as well as Moses and the Israelites would know God. 
Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never witnessed God's mighty hand of salvation. They only received it by promise. In other words, Abraham knew God as the promise maker. But Moses and Israel would know God as the promise keeper. And so do we. When we come to the New Testament, once again, God's people had suffered another 400 year period of oppression and it seemed like God was doing nothing. But after centuries of silence and seeming inactivity, God broke the silence with angelic announcements. God once more came down to rescue His people, but this time He would do it through a baby. In fact, there were two baby boys that would be born. The first was born to a priest named Zechariah. And much like Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth had this son in their old age. And this baby had come, John, had come to prepare the way for another of God's promises to be fulfilled. The birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Zechariah sings after John is born. And think about these words in terms of the Exodus. He said, Praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come and redeemed His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath He swore to our father Abraham to rescue us. See, God's promise to Abraham was more than the promise of just a nation and a land. It was the promise of a Messiah through whom all sin would be dealt with and the curse of sin would be reversed. And so God looked down at the enslavement of humanity to sin and He remembered His unbreakable promise of salvation. God remembered that promise on Christmas morning when Jesus came to keep the covenant that we could never keep. God remembered that promise on Good Friday when Jesus suffered all the curses and died the death that we deserved for breaking God's covenant so that we could be forgiven and be made right with God. God remembered that promise on Easter morning when He brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus through the blood of that eternal covenant. God remembers that promise every day day as Jesus stands at the right hand of God the Father to help us in our times of temptation and trouble and doubt to intercede before the Father on our behalf and to remind us that our sins are already forgiven and paid for. And as a seal of that eternal promise, the Holy Spirit is given to Jesus' followers to comfort us in our sorrow and to equip us for service. And God will once more remember His covenant promise when Christ returns to reunite heaven and earth, to make all things new, to save us from the very presence of sin and to usher us into the manifest, glorious presence of our Creator God. God is faithful and remembers His promise. But we struggle to remember them, don't we? We're the ones that have a difficult time remembering Whenever problems, whenever difficulties cause us to doubt God's promise and plan, the most important thing for us to do is to remember who God is. And as a result, to trust in His good and loving plan. Look back here at Exodus 6. I want you to notice, anytime you're reading Scripture and you see a, a word or a phrase that's repeated, it, it's not just that God doesn't stutter. God doesn't lose his train of thought and repeat himself, as I might do. 
God does it for a reason. And look at this. In, in Exodus 6, 2, God also said to Moses, what? I am the Lord. Now look up here at verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. Look at verse 7. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And look at the very last thing he says in verse 8. I am the Lord. The beginning, in the middle, and at the end of God's words to Moses, he reminds them who he is. I am the Lord. This is God's covenant name, Yahweh. It means I am that I am. And he's reminding them that he is eternally good and loving. That's his character. And out of God's character flows God's plan. And so his plans are eternally good and loving. God gives Moses and the people, in fact, four specific promises about his plan. And these are promises that we can bank on today as well. We can trust our lives, our problems, and our eternal destiny to the Lord because he will do more than just something. As Moses and Israel would soon see, God will do everything necessary for our salvation. So let's look at the first promise. The first promise that God makes is here in verse 6. When he says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. He promises to rescue them from slavery in Egypt. That's the first promise, rescue. Now, really, this is the most basic understanding of salvation. The most basic understanding of salvation is to be set free from slavery and released from captivity. And God would prove to Israel that He truly was their deliverer. God rescued them with His mighty hand by ten plagues against the Egyptians. Now, these ten plagues were not just random things that God thought up. These were designed by God to specifically counteract the gods of Egypt. So Egypt worshipped all these pagan gods. You had the god of the sun, you had the god of the river, you had the god of, of fertility for the livestock and for the crops. You had Pharaoh himself was a god. So they had all these gods that they worshipped, and systematically, one by one, with each plague, God undermines the Egyptians' faith in every one of their false gods. He showed not only Israel, but Egypt a well, that He alone was the sovereign Creator God. There are no other gods before Him. And through these plagues, the Lord... I mean, think about it. God decimated an entire economy. He laid waste to the mightiest empire on earth at the time. The Lord God was the one in charge. Pharaoh only thought He was calling the shots. And through these plagues and the parting of the Red Sea is as Ben and Christy so wonderfully illustrated for our kids up here this morning, God rescued His people. That's the first promise that God made. The second promise was redemption from Pharaoh. He continues here in verse 6 and says, And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Now this word redeem, it's a financial term, isn't it? It's one we still use today. If you ever use a coupon or a voucher, oftentimes we'll say redeemable at in the name of a store. Or it will say redeem by and give you a date. And when, when it means that redemption, it means that you can kind of trade that in and get something in return, right? And so literally to redeem means to buy back. It's to buy something back. 
You know, the government might redeem a bond that you purchased. They buy it back and they give you money in exchange for it. Well, at the time of the Exodus, to redeem was a term that was specifically used in talking about slavery. And, you know, in Egypt and in the ancient world, most slavery, either a country conquered a nation and took their people as slaves, or more often, it was that you owed money. And so because you owed money, you were sold into slavery to pay off your debt. And so you had to work as a slave until you paid off your debt. Well, to redeem meant to ransom or to pay the debt of a slave for their release. You would buy back this slave from their slavery. But here's the irony. With Israel, it wasn't God who paid the price for redemption. Who paid the price for redemption for Israel's redemption? Egypt did. It was their captors who actually paid the redemption price because God redeemed Israel by mighty acts of judgment. In other words, it was their captors who paid for their redemption by the loss of their herds and their crops and the firstborn son of every household in Egypt. But God redeemed His people. The third promise, God says right here in verse 7, it's the promise of a relationship with God. As a redeemed people, Israel would no longer belong to Pharaoh. So who would they belong to? God. They would belong to the Lord. He took them from Pharaoh so they could be His people. That's what He says in verse 7, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Now, that word take is the word that's most often used in Hebrew to mean to take in marriage. So if you're going to read somewhere in in the Old Testament about somebody taking their bride, taking a woman in marriage, it's this same word. And the Bible often uses the language of marriage to describe our relationship with God. In fact, the prophets would later compare Israel's idolatry to adultery that they were being unfaithful to God. They were breaking their covenant promises much as an unfaithful husband would break his marriage vows to his wife. The image here is clear. God is taking Israel as if to be His bride. This covenant with Israel, it's a family promise. He will care for them, provide for them, protect them. He will love Israel with an unbreakable, never-giving-up kind of love. And God expects Israel to have the same kind of love for Him. God expects Israel to trust Him and to be faithful to Him as a wife would be to her husband. Similar language is used in the New Testament too. The New Testament often compares the church to the bride of Christ. And so the message is clear. When God makes good on His promise, when God rescues and redeems His people, we belong to Him in an exclusive partnership of love, trust, and devotion. We have a relationship with God. And the fourth and final promise that God makes is here in verse 8. Look what He says. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you. As a possession. So the final promise is one of relocation. Relocation from Egypt to Canaan. From the land of slavery to the land of promise. This was a part of God's fulfilling His promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, 7 when God said to your offspring, I will give this land. But this promise was about so much more than just physical land. 
It was a guarantee of an inheritance, which again is the language of family. Think about what an inheritance is. It's, is an inheritance just available to whoever wants to claim it? No, it's to your family. It's to your children, your grandchildren. That's who your inheritance goes to. It's a, it's a way for families, for parents to pass on the blessing that they've enjoyed to their family, to their children. To, to their, the fruit of their labor is enjoyed by their children and their grandchildren. And so this land was a symbol and a reminder of God's blessing on Israel and that they were to pass that blessing on to the rest of the world. Look at verse 8. This image in verse 8, when God says, I will bring you to the land, I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham. I mean, it's, it's like the image of a courtroom. Where God's like, I don't know, like he's placed his hand on the Bible I don't, and raised his right hand. I don't know, it kind of seems a little weird to think about that. But that's what he says. With uplifted hand, with heaven and earth as my witness, I have sworn to give to Abraham and his children this land. Zechariah said something similar back in Luke one seventy four that we read earlier when he, when he talked about the oath that God swore to our Father to rescue us. So this land of Canaan... This was guaranteed by a promise. It was backed by the full faith and credit of the Almighty God. And in Ezekiel, much later on in the Old Testament, Ezekiel would talk about this promise. In Ezekiel 20, verses 5 and 6, he says, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, On the day I chose Israel, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of the house of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. With uplifted hand, I said to them, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. But this promise is about more than just the land. I mean, the land is a part of it. The land is real. It's not just figuratively speaking. It's literal. But this land is a physical representation of something else as well. Look back again at Exodus 6, verse 6. What's that first word? Therefore. And I've heard it said, and, and I'll say it here. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you see therefore, ask what's it there for. Okay? Therefore is always there for a reason. It's a linking word. And so it's linking what God's about to say with what God just said. And if you consider what He says in, in verses 2 through 5, God rescues, redeems, enter into a relationship with Israel and relocates them to the promised land because God remembered and is faithful to His covenant promise to Abraham. That's what it goes back to. God is saying, because of the promise I made to Abraham and because I'm faithful to keep my promises, I'm about to do these things. And the same is true for us today. God saves because He promised to save. And Genesis 3.15, at the very beginning, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God promised to send a wounded Savior to crush the serpent's head. And God saved Noah and his children because of that promise. And God called Abraham and his descendants because of that promise. And God delivered Israel from Egypt because of that promise. And Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave and is coming again because of that promise. From beginning to end, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
From the beginning to the end, the exodus was accomplished by God alone. And all that's left for Israel to do, all that's left for any of us to do, is found in verse 7. Simply know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of slavery, and I will bring you to the land of promise. God saved Israel by His sovereign grace. God did all the saving. God gets all the glory. And the same is true of the greatest exodus of all, our salvation from sin and hell and death through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus came to make good on God's promise to Abraham because it's through Jesus that all the nations of the world will be blessed. Jesus made good on God's promise to Adam and Eve because Jesus is the one who was wounded by the serpent but who crushed him under his heel. Jesus came saying, I will save you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will make you mine. I will give you a glorious eternal inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, Jesus rescues us from slavery to sin. Revelation 1.5 tells us that Jesus is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Jesus came to rescue. Jesus redeems us by His blood. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Jesus comes to rescue you from sin. He comes to redeem you from sin so that you no longer belong to sin. You no longer belong to this world. You now belong to God. And so Jesus gives us a relationship with God. In 2 Corinthians 6.16 it says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. And finally, Jesus relocates us into the kingdom of God and gives us an eternal inheritance. I love this New Testament passage that was read earlier, Colossians 1, 12-14, The Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light, for He has done what? Rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and He has relocated us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have what? Redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus is our exodus. And He fulfills all of these promises that God made to Israel and that God makes to us. Because in Christ Jesus, God has done all the work necessary for your salvation. For the forgiveness of your sins to be made right with God, to have an abundant life on this earth and an eternal life with God in heaven. Jesus has done it all. Jesus has paid the price. I'm going to close with one more passage of Scripture, a powerful, beautiful verse, one that I don't think we read often enough. And it's 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, say this part with me, they are yes in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through Him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. So no matter what you're facing, no matter what sins you have committed, no matter what guilt you're wrestling with today, Jesus is the yes to all of God's promises. Through Jesus, listen to me, through Jesus, God is saying yes to you. The only question that remains 
is will you say yes to Jesus? Will you say yes and let Jesus rescue you and redeem you from sin? Will you say yes and have a relationship with God and enjoy the riches and blessings of this life and the life to come? If you've never said yes to Jesus this morning, in a minute we're going to sing and I invite you to come. And I would love to help you say yes to Jesus Christ today so that you can be rescued, so that you can be redeemed, so you can have a relationship with God, so that you can be relocated from the kingdom, from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light, from death to life. Would you come in a moment and do that? Will you say yes this morning and let God remind you that no matter what you face, and I know that some of us in this room are facing very difficult situations in our lives, would you say yes and let God remind you that He is there to be faithful to you. In His time and in His way, He will deliver you for your good and for His glory. Whatever God has said to you this morning, if He has spoken to your heart, and I pray that He has, will you say yes this morning to faith in Jesus Christ? Will you say yes this morning to uniting with this church family? Would you say yes this morning and walking closer with Him and living for Him in this world as a blessing to those around you? Would you stand and sing and would you say yes to God today?